0: Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. We're in our summer hiatus right now. In just a few weeks, we'll be back with brand new interviews and news bonuses and all kinds of content for you. But right now, we're bringing back some of our favorite interviews from the last year. And absolutely one of my top, top picks when we thought about this was episode 131. It was called re The Real Experience. I've heard from more people about this episode than I think a lot of others uh, for a long, long time. Um, this episode featured a conversation with two gentlemen uh, who uh, asked to be called by their initials, Mr. F and Mr. R. They had both been released from prison here in my own state of Pennsylvania um, after substantial terms of incarceration, and they told us what it's really like to come out, what the services that one gets coming out really do, what it's like to cope with the bureaucracy foisted upon you in the name of helping you. You've got to hear this. They are so good. They are so real. So here are Mr. F. and Mr. R. from episode 131, Re-Entry, The Real Experience. I hope you like it. (laughs) Leaving incarceration and returning to life outside prison. It's a difficult process and many end up back behind bars. What does it take to make it work? What more can be done to support those coming home? We hear it directly from two men who've done it. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice, and welcome to this, our ninth season, our 131st full interview episode. I'm David Harris, your all-purpose justice, nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system, and still, yes, somehow employed in that excellent day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Yes, friends, a ninth season with 130 interviews with some of the most interesting and consequential people in the criminal legal sphere to explain to us how it all works what actually works and where we might go from here. The podcast, born in the wake of the terrible events of 2014 in Ferguson and the death there of Michael Brown, and now grappling with the questions and changes and anger after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. We are still here and hopefully contributing to your understanding of all of these issues, I have to thank my long standing, stalwart, and skilled producer and friend, and also my occasional interviewer, Josh Rollerson, who has always been with me to make the whole thing sound great and make sense. And I want to thank all of you who've listened, and especially those who have supported the effort by contributing on Patreon.com slash Criminal Injustice. I'm grateful for all your Ask Dave questions. You can keep those coming. And your suggestions for stories. Many, many thanks for being part of this. Now, we're going to start this new season with a limited series on an important but often overlooked issue. That issue is reentry. Reentry is the one-word term for what happens when those incarcerated are released from prison and reenter society. On that level, it's not terribly complicated, and in former times, very little attention was paid at all. People released from prison would have their clothes and possessions returned and would get some token amount of cash and a bus ticket home. End of story. No preparation, no help, no transition. Just out. Obviously, this wasn't a recipe for success. They might have a family on the outside to help them, but not all of them did. And the longer the sentence they had served, the less likely that they would have any resources to help them at all. And then, beginning in the 1980s and 1990s, the U.S. embarked on one of the largest and worst social changes in the modern history of developed countries. The U.S. began to incarcerate larger and larger and larger numbers of our fellow citizens. We went from a steady prison population in the low hundreds of thousands year in and year out to a million and then to two million. And despite some positive changes in the last 10 years, we still have over 2.3 million people incarcerated in this country. A staggering, staggering rate of nearly 700 per 100,000 population. We've talked with many advocates and policymakers and others about this problem here on criminal injustice. The sheer numbers, the long, long sentences built into these numbers, the racial disproportions how cash bail balloons jail populations with poor people and on and on what a lot of people miss though and what, what we'll focus on here is the fact that those numbers those numbers disguise the fact that a huge number of people are released every year according to the US Department of Justice over 650,000 people are released from prison every year. That's over 10,000 people a week coming back home. And of those, almost two thirds will be rearrested within three years of release, with most of those returning to prison. So, what are we seeing? In aggregate, it's, we have this huge prison population that we've created with hundreds of thousands entering every year and hundreds of thousands going out and most failing to stay out. Now, why is this so important? Now, here's a brief audio excerpt from a program called Due Process. This was produced by Rutgers University and its law school and PBS. And here is the answer in a nutshell. Listen up. Because 95 percent of those who go in will come out, and two-thirds of them will be back within three years. Some because they don't know another way.
1: They came right back out and got high the same day.
2: But others
0: because they can't find another way.
1: By us having a record and not being able to get certain jobs, that's going to keep us with criminal minds. Because we have to find a way to eat. We have to find a way to survive.
0: Now, this is the set of questions we'll be looking at for the next few episodes. What does it mean to re-enter society after prison? What does the process look like in a typical state? What makes for the greatest chance of successful reentry? And how can we enhance returning citizens' chances of success? Now, there are many ways that we could approach these questions, and typically, the media goes to the experts. I mean, we do that here, and we ask what the data shows as an overall picture, and what the data shows the programs, uh, which ones work best, and all of that. But we're going to take a different approach here. We're going to start on this episode by talking to two people who have walked the path of re-entry themselves. After long sentences, they will tell us what it was like, what helped, and what didn't. And that is how we're going to start our discussion of re-entry on this episode. Because both of our guests have concerns about how their stories might impact basic aspects of their lives, reactions of neighbors or landlords or employers, people like that, we will be referring to them by initials instead of names. They are Mr. F and Mr. R. Rest assured that I know who they are and I am personally acquainted with them, as are a full network of people that I know. All of what they have to say is real and true and comes directly from their own experiences. Let me introduce both of them now. Mr. F is a resident of Pittsburgh. He studied to become a paralegal after he was released. After considerable experience with the legal system and legal work conducted while incarcerated, he had both the skill and the drive for the job. He has worked for a law firm in the Pittsburgh area and is currently working on the effect of a juvenile life without parole sentence on parole status. These days, his focus is on grasping opportunities that allow him to be a productive member of his community. He considers himself fortunate to be serving parole, which allows him to pay his debt for his conviction. He adds that parole is a burden. He has had to learn survival skills to negotiate day-to-day access for his basic needs. Our second guest is Mr. R. Mr. R is a resident of Pittsburgh. He is a student of one of Pittsburgh's most prestigious universities where he is working toward a bachelor's degree. He holds a 3.8 grade point average. And that of course is an achievement that any student would be proud of. He is considering pursuing an advanced degree after graduation. Both of our guests have a couple of other things in common. First, both were incarcerated as juveniles. At the time, Pennsylvania law dictated that juveniles convicted of particular serious crimes would receive a mandatory life without parole sentence. Though still juveniles, they would never get out, no matter how much they might have grown, matured, or changed. Pennsylvania, of course, wasn't the only state with such a law, but the state did have the awful distinction of incarcerating the largest number of juveniles under so called life without sentences. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that laws that made a life without parole sentence mandatory for juveniles, like Pennsylvania's law, was unconstitutional. And four years later, the court ruled that this finding of unconstitutionality applied retroactively. That is it applied to all cases of all people serving such sentences and it did not just apply to cases going forward. So all the people under these sentences such as Mr. F and Mr. R would have the chance to be released. In 2018, Mr. F was released. He had served over 49 years and was then in his late 60s. Mr. R was released in 2017 after serving 38 years. He was sentenced to life without parole at 14 years old, and he was 52 upon his release. And they are among the lucky ones. According to the Howard Center for Investigative Journalism, of the 521 Juveniles on Mandatory Life Without Sentences in Pennsylvania, 210 have been released 216 were resentenced to define terms of years that were not life without but years 77 still awaited resentencing and 15 remain incarcerated or life without parole now the other thing that Mr. F and Mr. R have in common is that both are members of the Elsinore Benue. Think Tank, an informal network of the formerly incarcerated academics, lawyers, and former police officers who meet weekly to discuss these issues and take action on them. The Think Tank is led by Dr. Norm Conti of Duquesne University, who was a guest here on Criminal Injustice in Episode 86, where he discussed, along with Tyrone Wirtz, the Inside Out program many thanks to Dr. Conti for bringing us together for this conversation on this episode. Mr. F and Mr. R, I want to welcome you both to Criminal Injustice.
1: Afternoon, Mr. Dave.
0: I'm glad Thank you. I'm glad you're both here. Let's start with a very basic question. Uh, how far in advance did you know your release date? Was it a month or a day or six months? And what all did the Department of Corrections do to get you ready, if anything at all? What, Mr.
1: F? Why don't you start? Uh, start with the Bureau of Corrections, right? And you say how 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 soon did I know I was would be released, right? Uh, in night uh, two thousand twelve, once that uh, Supreme Court made its ruling in regards to Miller versus Alabama, it still took five years before. Pennsylvania realized the reality that it would have to apply it retroactive. And during those five years, Bureau of Corrections attempted to uh, bomb rush, the juvenile uh, inmates through a series of programs. Prior to that, uh, the average individual was allowed to participate in no program that would prepare them to be released, all right? Uh, nothing. Nothing, right? Uh, I mean you you can struggle sometimes, right? It depends on like uh how well you were in regards to like uh using a system, you might get fortunate to find yourself in a in a in a in a position that will allow you to to, to uh nurture your skills, right? In whatever area that you was in, right? But generally up until uh prior to uh being declared retroactive, right, they, they did little to prepare us right, uh, those five years waiting, right, they were scrambling, and, like, uh, once the ruling came down about retroactive, right, like, uh, I went to see the Pro Board in May, 2018, May 3rd, 2018, and I was released June 18th, same year, so uh, we're talking about, like, a little less than a month, to actually realized that, like, what what date I would I would be released? Right? And did
0: they do anything for you in that time?
1: All I could do was like take advantage of having the opportunity to, to participate in the program programs that they were offered other inmates, right? To prepare them for uh, once they once they were released, right? Uh, like uh, skills that would be marketable. right areas in the institution where I could have worked that would allow me to build skills, right? Uh, hand skills, labor skills. No, they, they didn't allow me to work in those areas. So nothing,
0: nothing really of any consequence. Mr. R. Same question to you. Um, how long, what was the sort of between the time they told you, okay, you're going to be released and your actual released, how much time was there? And what had been done if you couldn't take any programs before that? What had been done to prepare
2: you, if anything? Well, it, it, it was around a month I was uh, if I recall correctly, it had to be maybe a month, maybe a little less from the I mean, I knew I would get it get released eventually. but but when I actually found out a date, it, it had to be maybe 25, 26 days ahead of time. And um, I don't really, I I beg to differ with my distinguished colleague, Mr. F, because I don't really think they can do much. I I don't really believe they were prepared and they created the illusion that they were doing all that they possibly could, but I don't really think one well-meaning unit manager told me that I should actually tell the judge I wanted to stay for another year so that he could get me in certain programs that would help me upon release, and you, uh, you know, stay
0: longer for more help. Is that it?
2: Yeah, he said I should not. He said I should tell the judge that I didn't want to go home right away. That I should stay in prison to take advantage of some program. And uh, needless to say, I respectfully declined. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you did. So
0: you decline. Uh both of you are released. Upon release, tell us um what were your most basic needs in that moment? Knowing your own situation, what were your most basic needs? And I mean basic, your shelter, clothing, food, anything you think. Let's let this time we'll start with Mr. R. What were your most basic needs upon release?
2: Well, you see that's a tricky question because honestly, this is in hindsight. You know, and so in the beginning, after so long, you don't really know what your needs are. You find this out as you go along. However, when you get there, there's a lot of other people willing to tell you what your needs are. And they direct you to certain things, people and places. But it becomes apparent after a while they did not know what your needs would be. I mean, how could they? They'd never been in that situation. They could only imagine. And the whole situation was new. And so, again, I think the whole problem is we, I think it's indicative of this society where we try to create this one-size-fits-all mentality, you know, where we just try to say, well, what does success look like? Create this box and you get in it, you're successful. If not, you're not. But I just think that they had no clue as to individuals like they had certain paths that you could take or you could get this job or that job, but everybody is not meant to do every job. You see, when you graduate college or you come from the military or something, you find a job is for you or not, you knock around a little, but we were not afforded that opportunity. Like once they, you okay, you have a job, even though the job could not make you independent, it would condemn you to be poor forever. And you have no, you've been gone so long, you're starting from ground zero. And so, but they, it was technically a violation to quit a job and go back to school and look for other employment. And they would just say, well, you have a job and a place to stay, you're successful. And I thought, well, no, I don't. So it became apparent to me that I had to create my own form of success. I had to create my own paradigm and that these well-meaning people, some of them, some of them were not so well met, but what they had in common with, they didn't know what the hell they were talking about.
0: <laughs> well, let's, I want you to hold that thought. All right. Cause I want to come right back to that. Mr. Mr. F. As, uh, as we're talking here, when you got out, what were your most basic needs at the time?
1: As, uh, as everyone coming out of prison, right. Uh, shelter, food, clothing, uh, some type of income job, right. Uh, I was fortunate. I did have family support, right? Uh, in regards to like uh, that I learned, as Mr. Rick said, in hindsight, right? That like uh, how fortunate I was of that, and that like, I came out. Uh, one of my family members, first thing they uh were able to give me was insight into what I needed: ID, Social Security card, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we made sure that say. I got those things right. Uh he uh, provided me with shelter, right? In regards to like clothing and food, right? I mean, the food was there, right? But the clothing, the job and other incomes, right, that that was something that I had to find on my own. Uh as far as being prepared in regards to like uh what was being offered or what I could ask for, right? As, as Mr. R. says, right, I had very little insight in regards to that, right? Like a friend of mine was asking me, like, if I need some help, uh, let them know, right? And I had to be honest with them with the same type of approach in regards to, well, at the moment, I don't really know what I need, right? So I said, give me a moment, right, to, to get a feel about what's going on around me. Uh, uh, the basic thing I got was... From those that were concerned about me, was be patient, right? To understand about like uh, what I was about to go through, the goddamn uh, pinball machine, right? And that like uh, I go to talk to someone like like uh, Mr. R says, like they start telling me, well, you're gonna do this, you're gonna do that, and you're gonna do this, right? And it had nothing to do with where I know I needed to go, right? And that like uh, at my age in the reality of my age and in reality of like the job market, right. I had to accept that fact that like, uh, it was going to be uphill battle.
0: Yeah. So both of you now made reference to other people telling you what you needed or where you should go or what you should be or what kind of job. And I wonder if I could ask, uh, these other people what were they people within the parole system or people within agencies of government other than parole were they at nonprofit sort of agencies that were set up to help folks who were re-entering uh who were you dealing with and why the, uh if, if i could explain it this way if i can describe it this way, why the disconnect so who were you dealing with when you got out on these questions other than say family and what was that disconnect like? Let's, Mister Argo. Let's go to you first because you had this thought going when I, when I when we stopped.
2: Well, the first thing is the parole. I mean, parole is onerous at best, and I don't really think that they had any parole staff that were capable that that actually knew the uniqueness of the situation, and so I think. Some of them thought the way to help was to just be very stringent about all rules and regulations and just make you toe the line. And that would equal success. However, I, I disagreed because they didn't actually know, again, like they would say things like, OK, well, go get your ID. But they couldn't say, here's where you get it. Here's what you need to get it. Here's you know how you get there. Because honestly, we didn't even know how to get from one place to the other. You see, we don't know how to what bus. Actually, Mister F and I met each other, and we we helped each other like find bus routes and walk to downtown and walk to places. And it was a. And technically, I was not allowed to associate with other former incarcerated people. That
0: was a but the person of your who goal.
2: actually yes, and the person who actually took me around and drove me like for a week straight to secure clothing and ID because I was not in the system basically. And so it was like I was starting all over again. And so it took a long time to get some, because you have to start with some piece of ID, which I didn't have any piece, you see. And so it was hard to even get a birth certificate. And I wasn't born in this state. And so, and it was so long ago and it was in a rural place. That it was just very hard. It was documentation was was not that great back then. Uh-huh. This was pre-9-11, you see. Mm-hmm. And so, but the parole people did not like their training is such, if you say, Well, I'm having trouble, that means you're lying, you're not trying hard enough, and you get that, or there's consequences, which immediately made me just feel that okay, I just don't have much. To say to these people, they look at it as like non cooperative. I looked at it as saving myself, honestly.
0: Right, Mister F, your dealings with parole
1: were they like that or or different? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, the first time I went to the pro office, right, they wasn't sure of like under whose uh, uh, who my pro officer was. So, but they gave me instructions to show up at a job fair right? I said, okay. Gave me some papers. Just that evening, I was talking to my cousin, explaining to them about the uh, papers that they gave me. I, I showed them the papers. And one of the things that it indicated, if I don't show up at the job career, that would be a violation, right, of my parole, right? And my cousin asked me, did I even know where the place was? And I didn't, right? Mm-hmm. And they asked me, did, uh, well, did they provide you with a uh, bus fare or instructions or anything? I told them no, right? Now, they wanted to call them up, right? And I said, no, nah, leave it alone. I said, I'll, I'll find a way to get over wherever the place is, right? I, I said, I'll find a way. I said, because if this is gonna be a pattern in regards to like, just telling me what to do and not helping me to do it, right? I said, I'm gonna have to get used to it. And I don't wanna get put in a category where they saying, every time I raise a question that is reconsidered some type of reason to violate me, right? So I had to get get past that reality and say, well, however it's presented to me, I got to find a way to deal with it. Uh, As Mr. R says, right? Like uh, the simplicity of these things is that like uh, even with family support, right? It was putting a burden on them and like uh, the things that I needed, right? clothing, right? Uh insight in regards to like uh, how to get places without consuming their time, right? I had to learn those things myself, right? And how to work 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 my way into a position where it's like uh I could make the things work for me that were in society in like thrift stores, right? Mm-hmm. And uh instead of like uh buying something off the rack, I would have to buy it off the thrift store, right? Try to make it stretch it into one dollar. Try to stretch it into five dollars, right? But that was part of the things that learning that I had to realize was that, like, uh, when instructions came from those that were saying that they was acting in my good help and my best interest, I had to take it with a grain of salt.
0: A grain of salt, indeed. So I, I, I gather that both of you separately dealt not just with the parole agency but with uh non groups that were uh set up or designed to help people with the the process of re-entry was that any better or different did that help you uh if yes how if not why not Ms. mr f let's start with you this time then we'll go to mr
1: it R. became an issue for me in that uh few ones that I was going to like uh they 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 had their thing set up and I was supposed to fit within their thing but the category like as coming out as a in prison as a child and coming out as a grown man an older grown man that's out of the job market right they didn't have no way of uh dealing with that right and that like some of the instructions that they was giving me, right? Well, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And I try to explain to them, I just had five years of that about how to fill out a application, what to say on the application, this and that. But the reality was there was things on the application that like, you can't hide, right? Uh, What's your formal employment? Uh, I had no formal employment. What's your formal addresses? I had no formal address. What's your credit record? I had no credit rating. All right, But here again, their program was, well, we're going to take you to our series of steps. And I'm saying, well, this is causing another problem for me. And I had to find a way to address it. Again, I was fortunate enough to run into Mr. R, who was out a year before me. And he began to tell me some of the things that he he experienced in regards to, like, trying to get through day to day. Right. It was a job market that they, that, uh, my pro officer instructed me to appear at. And he just so happened. His pro officer instructed him to appear it. I had to want. take, the, uh, I had to uh, take the uh, opportunity to find out where the job market was two days before. So to make sure that when it comes time to be there, that I knew where it was and how to get there.
0: Yes. So, uh, the job Mr. fair. yeah, the job fair, Mr. Mr. R similar experiences with, uh, the nonprofit sector with the people who non-government, but there to try to help you similar experiences?
2: Again, see, when I explain this in a short way, in a, in a brief way, it almost sounds like bitterness, which I don't mean to to project. However, I do know that when you, when you come home after so long, you assume, that the people already out here, they know better than you. And they assume the same thing. Like I said, it doesn't take long though, for certain things to become obvious. They don't know what you, you know, they don't understand the situation at all. And then it becomes almost a power play. It becomes like, well, we're telling you, not we're helping you. You know, whatever you do for me, without me, you do to me. Uh And so that, is the fact. Say, and so say, this is,
0: say that again. I want everybody to hear that. Whatever. Go ahead. Please say that again.
2: Whatever you do for me, without me, you do to me.
0: And that's what you experience.
2: Oh, because, you know, like, say, the the, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections have certain contracts with certain organizations. Like, for, for one example, when they sent me to that job, I already had a job. But on the paper, the parole person has to check that he sent me to the job fair. And so I have to go. So I have to call off work to go to a job fair when I already have a job. And then <laughs> they offered me this job at a warehouse making $7 an hour where I was already making twelve fifty. You see? And so I was like, but no, no. And they wanted me to say, well, we got you this job. And so you can't turn this down. The parole people actually felt like I should go to that. And I said, I won't do that. And so technically, we, we, I was invalid. But, you know, we went to the supervisor. We worked it out. And I said, I'm not even standing. I'm going back to school. And he's like, well, you overreach it. And so and I said, no, I don't think so, because I, this job could never make me independent. I appreciate it while I have it. But it's a stepping stone. And they felt that, well, well, you should be happy. And they sent me to places. I won't mention any names, but I went to these places and they found I was somewhat articulate and I could somewhat speak for people like me. So they would invite me to come to these meetings and talk, but they wouldn't, I would have to like find a way to get there. I'd have to catch a bus and then walk two miles at night in the rain. And they didn't even like, you know, figure out a way to get me there and afterward, a way to get me home. And they would and I found out later that they were getting paid for this, but it was me and people like me who were putting butts in the seats for them to get paid. It became obvious that the mission of the nonprofit is to chase nonprofit dollars, like to help like when they would say, Do you have a job? Yes, they would check that box. First of all, they get all your information. And so now you're in their system, in their database. And so now do you have a job? Yes. Do you have a place to stay? Yes. That equals success. So now you become a number that they can use to say we've helped in order to get more, you know, um, grant monies and this kind of thing.
0: More funding.
2: And I thought, wow, clearly, whatever the mission was to begin with, that is secondary to getting more money. And so I said, well, I'm not going to continue because I felt used at that point. Because they were no help when it came to the parole people, they were no help in bearing my circumstances. But I, in fact, I was a lot of help to them by going every place where they could say my story and chop me out. Be like, this, "This is what we do," and actually, what have you done? And and I saw that they these people didn't even hire. I had to put in the application, and they wouldn't even hire people like me. But they would allow me to consult. And tell them what people like me needed, and then they could take that upward to the supervisors or whoever, and then they could take credit for that. And I thought that this is wrong. And this, and I was one of the first people to get back into Pittsburgh, and I thought there's going to be a lot of people after me. This can't go on. This The system as is is not built to really help. And this re-entry thing was sexy at the time, and there were a lot of dollars to be had, and I thought reentry should be by, of, and for re period.
0: That is a strong point, well expressed. Let us take a very quick break here. We're on criminal injustice with Mr. F and Mr. R, both of whom have returned uh, from incarceration, and they are helping us understand The real deal behind reentry. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. David Harris here, back with you on Criminal Injustice. Our subject today reentry coming back into society after a sentence of incarceration. And our guests are Mr. F and Mr. R, both of whom have re-entered our society after their sentences. And we're using those initials uh, to protect their privacy. Uh, And before the break, we were talking about the difficulties that both of our guests had with both the parole system, which you might've expected, and then also with the various nonprofit agencies that were set up uh, to help them, uh, but did not do the kind of of job that either of our two guests uh, were hoping for. So I guess where I'd like to start this part of the conversation is just to ask you, both of you have built a life after being uh, released. Um, And you did this, if I'm hearing you right, almost in spite of, and certainly not without much help from the system, either the government system in the parole office or the nonprofits, how did you do it? What were the effective steps uh, that you can tell us that you had to take? What really did work for you? Who helped you? How did they help you? Mr. R., why don't you go ahead?
2: Well, again, the first step, the greatest step was to stop listening to those people, the people that uh, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest about it. Like, sure, and the people that I know who are really successful are people who had the wherewithal to to, to make self determination a, a major priority, autonomy. You know, part of the whole reason in society why we have like, when I say blacks in America, most young black males don't feel autonomous from the beginning they they feel emasculated by society and situations like this exacerbate that and so they can they can like take bad advice and then they could just say it wasn't my fault it was their fault so i thought that well being in prison for such a long time it creates we have what i like to call you know coping skills in abundance yeah and so when you, you already know, you're facing the worst on a daily basis, so you already know how to picture something different, something different for yourself. Because if you get caught up in the everyday goings-on, you see it around you every day in prison, what happens. And when you make a decision, anyone that's made it for that long, like Mr. F, and he's of sound mind and body, he has something special. And so when, when we came back, People did not recognize that in the beginning. They thought they knew it all from some book or some classwork or some, you know, like a lady told me, well, I have a degree. How many do you have? And I said, well, and she was in a nonprofit. And I said, well, I have some life skills. I have some life experience. And I'd put that up against your degree any day. And I got up and walked out of the door. And that was like the beginning of, like, I knew I had to meet like when you said the real deal, left. I started my own group called the real deal on reentry. I talked to a church. They let me get their building, you know, every third or fourth Saturday. So people like me could just sit around and, just, and come up with stuff. Mr. F, he introduced me to the think tank. He and I walked around, you know, I introduced him to who I knew. He introduced me to who he knew and we created our own network. And that's how we did it. Like, Again, not to sound bitter, but I do know that you can't t- like if they took me to NASA and put me in control of the space program, that's a failure. Unless I listen to the people who know what they're talking about, right. who, who've been there, who who since men to the moon, But they put a bunch of people in charge of this reentry that had no clue about reentry. And I thought, and they wouldn't even like consider it's changing now, don't get me wrong, but at that time. Like I said, they would not even consider hiring people like us or even really taking us seriously. Like, they have this helper, helping mentality. And they were the helpers, and we were the e. And and many of them became actually, like, frustrated or even, like, this person's hard to help. Like, he's very ungrateful because I wasn't willing to settle for a life that I thought was lesser, lesser than I was capable of
0: right mr f how did is this is this the picture for you too a sort of self-created network is that how uh, how things worked out
1: i had to learn to view reality out here right in regards to like uh whatever skills you bring to the table right they have to be marketable like uh a lot of things that i learned in prison right a lot of uh jobs that I have done, right, I knew they weren't marketable. They weren't up to the marketable level yet, right? So when I would go to these uh, jobs, job fairs, or, right, these agencies, right, that's what I was hoping for, was the opportunity to get in some type of program that would allow me to bring my skills up to the marketable level, right? And uh, that's where I started realizing that like, uh, they weren't prepared for that, right? The whole thing was well. This is what we do. We want you to take. Want you to go through this program. This is how we. This is how we do our thing. This and that, right? And I said, well, that's that's causing me too much aggravation, right? So I had to say to myself, realizing as people were telling me to be patient with myself, right, and with my skills, right. And that like uh, one one job fair I went through right uh. Lady was telling me about they were starting a candy factory. Everything was going to be automated, right? Uh, And I I explained to her, right, that, like, uh, for over six years, I had worked in an industrial laundry, right, as a maintenance uh, technician, right, working on the machines as well as I had to learn every machine in there. So once we fixed it, to make sure how it runs, so I knew the ins and outs of, like, programming machines, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. automated machines, right? And once she looked at my resume, I mean, looked at the resume and uh, in the, in the application that I put in, her thing was, she said, this this ain't going to make it through the door. She said, I hear what you're telling me. She said, but the problem is, she was there just to collect the uh, applications. She was saying, like, people above her, they're going to look at the gaps in my, my my unemployment thing. And she said, they're going to throw it in the trash, right? So some of those realities you had to accept, right? That like uh." no matter what you bring to the table, right, it's not fitting the, the, uh, the definition as they say, right, about meeting their criteria, right? So as uh, Mr. R says, right, I had to realize that like, damn, I gotta step back, take a slow step, right, in in regards to realizing that like, what, what are the requirements out here, right? So I had to find ways to get those requirements, right? Uh, whether it was classwork, right, or some of the jobs that I was fortunate to work with people.
0: Yes. So we've mentioned a couple of times one piece of major network um, that, you, that you both share, and that's the think tank. Um, I wonder if both of you would take a minute to talk about uh, how you got connected with the think tank, what it does for you, um and 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 what you what you've gotten from that, if there are other similar networks or relationships in your lives that have helped you.
1: I think I better I think I should start Rick. Mr. R. Uh in this regard, like uh I was fortunate. Uh I think I have been home I've been home maybe two weeks. And a friend of mine from Philadelphia called and asked me, was I going to a meeting uh, at a place called the Boom Room in regards to an organization called Let's Get Free? Uh, Where I was staying at, it wasn't too far from there, right? So I told him, I said, well, let me get down to this address. And it just happened to be a few blocks from where I was staying at, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where I went down there. Uh, he was having some type of rally in regards to uh Fetterman. This is when he was running for uh, starting to run for uh, Lieutenant governor. Right. There's Lieutenant uh, governor
0: John Fetterman.
1: Yes. Yeah. So he was, he was appearing there. Right. So uh, my friend asked me to, uh, to look for the, uh, the occupant that was running it, uh, running the organization. Let's get free. So uh, I went down there and while I'm down there, looking around, trying to see what I see, I began to see old acquaintance that I grew up with, right? That uh that were that were there for the meeting that, to hear what Frederim was saying, right? And one of them, uh, he come over to me, say, Man, you have to come to this place over on Duquesne, right? He say, Man, like uh what they offer is probably gonna be a good opportunity for you. Right. He said you can come over and listen, right? So I said, well, where is it at? He said, it's on the Duquesne Bluff, this and that there. I said, well, I hear what you're saying. I said, but honestly, like, I said, I don't know how I'm going to get over there. Right? So one of our friends that was standing there, Maggie, she said, well, I'll pick you up. And sure enough, next morning, which was a Friday morning, she did arrive early, get me there. We got there by 830, right? And, like, uh, the atmosphere was such that, like, uh, It creates a real comfortable atmosphere in regards to like whatever problems or insights that you bring to the table, they're welcome. Right? And the the people around the table like creates the opportunity, if they can help, they, they really will help, right? As long as you're able to like articulate what it is that you that you think you're going through, right? And that gave me opportunity to uh realize that like there is opportunities out here, right? And that created uh, created the chance for me to say, well, this will allow me to like take my time and not feel like I'm being pushed somewhere. Right. Uh I was fortunate enough uh running to Mr. R soon thereafter again at, 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 at a rally of let's get free, right? And uh, explain to him that 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 that, that Duquesne University uh, at at uh, the think tank was available, right? And I believe that uh, it would give him a good opportunity, right, to put things in perspective.
0: That's excellent. Uh, this is the organization uh, uh, run. Uh, by Dr. Norm Conti, but really run by everybody who participated and I've been to a couple of the meetings and I just think it's extraordinary. So uh, let me just, uh, let's bring it all the way around. Let me ask each of you the following. If there's one thing you would want people listening to know about re-entry, about coming home out of prison and trying to make your way back into a life, um, what would it be? And, I, you know, I said one, but if you want to make it two or something, that's okay, too. But what would be your message to people listening about reentry? Uh, Mr. R., why don't you take that?
2: Well, well, first of all, I don't think this thing we call crime and criminality, I don't think it happens in a vacuum. So I, I don't think you could shrink it down to something so small like that. There's many systemic, Society societal issues that we have to consider. And uh, and one thing I learned, I still maintain my innocence. I went to prison for, I mean, it was never alleged that I murdered anyone, that I robbed anyone or anything of that nature, but it was still legal to put me in jail for life, even though I had not participated in any crime, such as the law. But anyway, and so, but going into prison, Being young, I felt that I didn't belong here, you know, but as I was in prison for a long time, I I realized that we don't have a society where where most crimes are committed by criminals. This is really not the case. Most crimes are committed by people we look at as non criminals. And then we reduce crime to this just certain thing that we call crime, like street crime, you know, robberies and rapes. And we say, oh, these are criminals we have to lock up. But it's all created in such a way that it's not a vacuum that that what what I'm trying to say is that what the people need to realize is that when you hear that title, ex-convict, re-entry, returning citizen, that does not immediately make for a bad guy, a rapist, a murderer, a thief, or someone who committed crimes, or someone worthy of prison. That's really not the case. But but our conditioning is such that how can it be the case you were in prison? But right now, we look at the goings-on in Washington and so forth. We can say that a lot of people we think should be in prison. Or we can see a lot of people now getting out of prison because they had somebody who could get to the president. And now you see how many pardons are taking place now? I mean, and so, but those people, I guarantee could come back into society, like with a little financial, you know, and, and be good again. They won't have to go through what we call re-entry. Re-entry is basically for poor people, people of color, and this kind of thing. So I just hope people would, would see better that, you know, that label does not make what you think it does. And if people gave you a a start, if people could look at you as who you are, this is why right now I never introduce myself by my past. A lot of my colleagues get mad because I never talk about my past or what, and they feel like, well, it's a great story and it makes people see, but I will talk about it later after I get to know people and after they get to know me. Right. And then, Because it's hard for people, when they hear that first, not to lock you into this pigeonhole, lock you into this box. But once I had a friend over in Oakmont, and I went and visited her church, and we spoke there. You know, we went there a lot. And she just introduced me as R. Later, maybe a year later, it got out who I was. And and she, she used to introduce me as R from Harvard. And people bought that, you know, and then, and then when they found out, they were like, oh, my God, what a fraud. Right. And then she said, no, we did that <laughs> deliberately so that people would because once it happened, they gave me the benefit of the doubt. Once they found out, they were like, this is bad. This never should have happened. We need to write the governor, the president. I mean, I had a lot of friends. However, have they known about my story previous? It would have been different. It would have been just like all the employers or landlords or whoever else just said no from the beginning without ever knowing me, without just by hearing what they heard about I was in prison.
0: Mr. F, I'd like to give you the last word here. Uh, What would you want listeners to know about reentry, your journey, what it takes, where you are now? You have the floor.
1: Uh my journey ain't no ain't no different than the next individual in terms of re-reentry, whatever that actually means. And that like uh it implies like there's a lot of support out there when there's not, right? The greatest access that attribute that I had was like my family support, right? And that like it provided me with shelter, provided me with food, right? Uh it, it was a burden on them, but at the same time, right, it allowed me Get the opportunity to 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 achieve, acquire clothes, right? I'm a grown man, and like I didn't expect them to to, to clothe me, but the the food and the shelter allowed me that opportunity to do that, right? Uh, far as like uh, what would I change in regards to like uh, the reentry thing, right? The reality is like those people need those things when they do come out, right? those basic needs in some way, right? Uh, Just to say, well, we're gonna give you the opportunity to to get these things, right? That creates an issue in terms of saying you're gonna give them the opportunity, then you start taking them down the rabbit hole, right? That's the frightening part, right? And that like, uh, I would see individuals when I like, uh, in my travels that was coming out of the uh, halfway houses or local places where they got people waiting to be paroled or, or once they got them their shelter, they would kick them out in the morning and tell them, "I go out, find a job, right? Where I would see some of these individuals, right? through in the city, and remember traveling, right? And what they was going through and like, they were stuck in a, in a cycle of uh, just having nowhere to go for hours at a time, all right? And like you say, uh, I don't mind, like it's devil hands or whatever, right? Like I would say, damn, right? I, it made me appreciate the little that I did have in regards to family support.
0: Our guests, Mr. F and Mr. R, both uh, returning citizens, both here to give us the real story about their own personal reentry into society from life before, and what the real facts are for those who have that difficult journey to make. I'd like to thank you both for being my guest today on Criminal Injustice.
1: And my pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having us.
0: Stick around for another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the website Above the Law concerns lawyer Aaron Schlossberg of New York. Everyone listening will remember that there was a time long ago in a galaxy far, far away in which you could do certain things like leaving work to go pick up lunch during your workday. Not a lot of that right now during the pandemic, but it used to happen all the time. A nice way to get at least a few minutes away from the desk And move around. Well, one day back in 2018, lawyer Schlossberg went out for lunch to pick up that salad or sandwich and, for what reason, it's hard to say, decided to use this low-key everyday errand to demonstrate just what an outspoken racist he is. How much better it would have been for his standing among members of the legal profession for Lawyer Schlossberg to just go into the Fresh Kitchen restaurant and pick up his lunch with his mouth shut until he tried to use it to eat. But no, Lawyer Schlossberg heard something in the restaurant that he, a lawyer, could not tolerate. It seems that two Fresh Kitchen employees preparing the food that day were, wait for it, speaking Spanish. Not to Lawyer Schlossberg, mind you, just to each other. Well, Lawyer Schlossberg wasn't having it. No, he would speak up. Express differently, he decided to have himself a good old racist rant. And, lucky day, lots of it was caught on video. Just a couple of excerpts, read by yours truly, of what lawyer Schlossberg had to say. Quote, If they have the balls to come here and live off my money, I paid for their welfare, I paid for their ability to be here. And... My guess is they're not documented, so my next call is going to be to ICE to have each one of them kicked out of my country. ICE would be Immigration and Customs Enforcement. There was more, of course, and some of it appeared on the television program Inside Edition. That last one really stands out now. Lawyer Slosberg threatening to call ICE on the two employees to attempt to cause them harm in the form of deportation, assuming, as he did, that they were undocumented, reminds one just a bit of the lady in Central Park in New York City in May of 2020, calling the police on a black man who was out to watch birds because he had the odd to demand that she obey the rules and leash her dog. Well, word of Lawyer Schlossberg's rant in the restaurant quickly got out and into the media. According to Above the Law, Lawyer Schlossberg's firm began to suffer from a tsunami of horrible online reviews due to their employees' racist rant and eventually someone had the lovely idea of having a mariachi band camp out in front of Schlossberg's place of residence playing to beat the band." Well, things did not end there. A bar complaint was filed against Lawyer Schlossberg, and now we have the state bar's response. In a December 2020 opinion, the bar has decided that Lawyer Schlossberg will be publicly censured. Lawyer Schlossberg has agreed to accept this. But there's something in the disciplinary opinion that stands out to me. The opinion says that Lawyer Schlossberg has no record of disciplinary infractions before or since, which counts in his favor. It then goes on to say that lawyer Schlossberg, quote, repudiated his conduct as indefensible, and he rejects and repudiates any notion that an individual's race or national origin controls or limits their work or right to equal protection under the law, close quote. Well, Really? Uh, Because this is so clearly the opposite of what Schlossberg says and threatens to do in these recordings. What he says demonstrates that he believes exactly the opposite. Based simply on speaking another language, certain people do not belong— and do not deserve the equal protection of the law. In fact, they deserve to have law enforcement called to lock them up and deport them, a weaponization ethnic bias. Should lawyer Schlossberg have suffered a harsher penalty? I leave that question for others. But let's just say I'm not as impressed as the Bar Committee was with his repudiation of his demonstrated bias against people he suspects of being undocumented. Sounds a lot more like a conversion of convenience. At the disciplinary hearing than a heartfelt change. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Leave us a review, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for All of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal system? Go to the Ask Dave tab on our website and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question at 412-412. 407-3389. Again, that's 412-407-3389. Remember, we are a listener-supported effort. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to Patreon.com slash criminal We really do appreciate that. Thank you for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time.